Welcome to the Progress Texas Happy Hour. All right, thanks so much for tuning in once again to the Progress Texas Happy Hour, a special uh, extra edition as we've been wanting to do uh, lately here with Progress Texas. My name is Chris Mosier. I'm a content production specialist for Progress Texas. We are joined by senior strategist Glenn Smith as well. Hello, Glenn. How are you doing? Well, thank you. Happy to be here. And uh, we also have a very, very, very special guest, probably the most special guest we could possibly uh, drag in for this particular topic at this particular time. Uh, we're joined by Krista Castaneda, who is a renowned energy sector attorney and founder of the Castaneda firm. Uh, she also ran for Texas Railroad Commission back in 2020. And let me quickly run off Krista's very impressive top line of her uh, of her bio. She's a go-to lawyer for high-stakes litigation in the energy industry and beyond. She's an engineer with a deep understanding of energy operations, finance, and markets, as well as a sought-after speaker and author on energy issues and litigation matters. With more than 25 years' experience, she's built a solid reputation for adeptly handling technical litigation, often serving as lead trial counsel in high-profile disputes of media interest. I would say this is a great person to talk about Russia and oil and all the stuff and the ways that it affects Texas. So welcome, Krista. Well, thank you for having me. I, I hope I live up to the intro. <laughs> I think you will. And can we start off with, uh, for me, it's, it's almost like explaining it like I'm five. You know, everybody's talking about gas prices and how... This is related to the uh, the Russian attack on Ukraine. Uh, of course, the news uh, that's just developed with the Biden administration uh, cutting the U.S. off from uh, Russian petroleum imports for the moment uh, and how that's going to affect world markets and most specifically for people listening to this podcast, how that's going to affect the prices that they pay at the pump. So can we start off with a very basic nutshell thing, which is why exactly does this conflict on the other side of the world have such a direct impact on global oil prices and specifically what we pay for gas here in Texas? Well, sure. So let me start with the very basic premise that supply and demand meet to set the price. So when your supply goes down and demand stays where it is, the price goes higher. When your demand goes up, price goes higher. So we've got a lot of things going on that suggest that um, we're expecting diminished supplies and we're expecting the price to go up accordingly because demand isn't diminishing and in fact has gone up as a result of the pandemic. So that's it at a 10,000 foot view. I'm going to stay with that 10,000 feet if I can. And by the way, I want to thank you before I say anything for not juxtaposing my resume against Chris's because I would have been really embarrassed. It <laughs> had <laughs> been like the sacred and then me the profane. So I appreciate you not, uh, not doing that, Chris. We know the global oil market is a very complex beast. So many factors play in from so many directions. It also is always running ahead of... It's also based on predictions of what's ha going to happen in the future and not necessarily what happened in the last hour or the last week. But politically speaking, the public gets a very, in fact, an oversimplified view of, of oil and, and, and politics. They don't get to be told much more in the advocacy sense, like some are doing now, that gas prices don't need to be this high. The oil companies are gouging us, um, which could be the case, don't get me wrong. Uh, but they can't make a connection between 
what they're feeling in their lives, which is a severe increase in their cost of living. Just think of the poor commuters, you know, think, think of people already priced out of urban areas where they work because of gentrification, right? We already have, and so their commutes are longer and longer, and now their cost of commuting is more and more, and certainly they, you know, their bosses haven't made up for that with increased salaries in the short term here. But I want to quickly add that it's kind of, I want to put a burden on folks to figure it out, to pay a little bit more attention, and especially to one thing in particular. And I wrote about that this week. It is a sacrifice on behalf of freedom fighters in the Ukraine. There's no question about it, right? And our country has been known to make such sacrifices, even far greater sacrifices on behalf of those kinds of struggles. Think of World War II. And people had to go without a lot of things, had to go without bicycles for a while, for crying out loud, right? So I think we ought to tell ourselves that these sacrifices, they have meaning for us. They're contributing to something that's very important to our future and the future of the world. And it's not just happening in a vacuum where we're paying more for gasoline or oil-related other products and goods. It's important that people keep it in that context. And I just wanted to make that point. I'll add one fun fact to it, just so people know there's always a silver lining on these kinds of sacrifices, besides knowing that you're involved in the struggle for freedom and justice. In World War II, the rationing that was necessary led to the mass uh, distribution of macaroni and cheese. That's when it first got to be really, really popular. So I just want people to know we may hit the new macaroni and cheese out of this in the end. Krista, tell me uh, from a political standpoint, uh, you know, the latest that we're hearing from the national level is that uh, the you know President Biden and the Democratic side have kind of adopted a blame Putin sort of uh, of angle, which is similar to what Glenn is talking about, that we're in a struggle against an authoritarian aggressor. And uh, one of the early sacrifices we're being asked to make is at the pump, while the, uh, the GOP appears to be for the moment realizing that the political winds are blowing that way and they're going along with it. But are we looking at a situation where there may be kind of a Carter maneuver involved here where the GOP is hoping that even though they're cooperating at the moment, that eventually voters are going to get fed up with uh, with higher gas prices and that may benefit them in the midterm elections. Yes, but I've got more to say than just yes. I'm glad. <laughs> the Republicans, no doubt, will do exactly that. Let me, let me back up for just a minute, though. Just on the fundamentals again, the 10,000-foot view, I want to reiterate something that, that Glenn said, and that is, you know, a lot of things get factored into these oil markets. And the, the fact of, of the matter is, is the prices of oil were very high beginning at the beginning of the year for reasons that really didn't have very much to do with this conflict. And then as the conflict loomed and people saw this as a possibility, the prices went higher. And so the prices that we're paying at the pump today on March 9th of 2022 are not directly related to what the Biden administration announced yesterday, um, it, that they're, they're sanctioning Russian oil. Um, there, there's, there's a whole lot of, of of things that go into the movement of prices. Um, that being said, I do anticipate that, you know, that we as Democrats will continue to signal that this is, um, you know, something, a shared sacrifice that we need to participate in. And I think right now um, people are accepting that. And I do anticipate that the Republicans will eventually, um, if it drags on long enough and the prices go high enough, because there are some speculators saying it's going to double, which is a very high price, 
then Republicans will really start to get on the uh, it must be the Biden administration's fault bandwagon. We're already starting to see these uh, stickers popping up on gas pumps around uh, around the country with a picture of Joe Biden saying this is my fault pointing at the uh, at the price tag. I haven't seen that myself yet, but I'm hearing a lot of stories about people peeling those off, thankfully. So it seems like that situation has already begun. Let's talk about, you know, kind of where this goes. Another uh, another part of uh, the news today that seems to be moving so quickly, the Biden administration has begun to uh, make overtures to various uh, oil producing countries, including Saudi Arabia, including Iran, including uh, Venezuela, uh, I think in hopes of them cranking up their production to be able to offset this Russian exclusion. I'm a little confused at this point because it seems like that's a little bit of a dire move that might sort of uh, tend to undermine our moral position uh, that we're trying to establish by, you know, striking back against an authoritarian aggressor at this point, you know, in, in Vladimir Putin. Do we not kind of, uh, you know, give away the moral high ground by approaching a country like like Saudi Arabia or a country like Iran? Especially given what we've been told that uh, the Russian contribution to our overall oil appetite is rather small. I don't think so. Uh, I think it may be a practical necessity to do it, right? And I'm not so, it's one of those things, it's like a game of that old board game risk, you know? And like, so like, like it or not, the fossil fuel right now is a, it's dominant in geopolitics. And Tying down supplies from here, there, and everywhere is extremely important to the outcome of this struggle and similar struggles and to the balance of power on the globe. It's, it, it may not be as tasteful a thing that we want to do. And many it's probably also not giving very much aid and comfort to those. They're going to sell that oil somewhere, right? I mean, they're not, in, and this is, I'm going to, I'm going to leave this because I want to tie it to a question for Krista about domestic production. I'm not certain any of them have the capacity to greatly increase production at the moment. And I'm not certain that we do, even though there's talk of the 9,000 unused oil lease permits already that oil drillers have. I'm not so sure that any of us are not close to maximum output. I mean, the price has been high enough and the futures market was good enough that aren't most producers doing, you know, running their production close to maximum already? Chris, so that's a question, really, more than I don't know the answer. Okay, well, on that front, let's just talk about domestic production for a minute. What I see is that in terms of consumption, our domestic consumption, Russian oil supplies somewhere around 8% of our domestic consumption. Now, we need to replace that unless we're going to feel a true squeeze in terms of our ability to maintain our economy. We can replace it here at home. We are not tapped out, but it's not just a question of turning the tap further open. It's a question of drilling and completing new wells, um, and that takes a bit of time to do. We're ne- we've never been faster at it than we are today. It's never been easier and less expensive than it is today, pandemic issues to be put aside. Um, so I do think that we have the ability to domestically ramp up a a good bit of the shortfall that we experience here. However, the price of oil is set globally. And so demand is going to drive the price of oil up on a global basis. Um, And it's not just our consumption we have to look at, it's worldwide consumption. And Glenn, I agree with you. You know, moral high ground um, is is 
something to be considered. But in a time like this, um, there are some really pressing factors, including the health of the worldwide economy and not inspiring or instigating a global recession that I think has to drive some of this discussion. So, Krista, we we talked about the potential of the fact that uh, even the prices that we've started to see climb, which have already begun to hit records, are not actually directly related to the moves that are being made against Russia. Tell me, how bad could this possibly get? I mean, what's the what's the really bad scenario? Because people are already beginning to I wouldn't say they're panicking, but they're definitely noticing you know, how bad could it get for us, especially here in Texas? And by the way, I was noticing on the, the AAA map of average gas prices, we've got the cheapest gas in the country right now, which I think is, you know, pretty common. Uh, it's higher than it used to be, but it's still the cheapest in the country. How bad could it get for Texans? Well, look, a lot of um, just in terms of price dynamics, you know, there's a lot that goes into it. How close are we to refineries? How robust is the pipeline system to, do, to deliver um, to the specific locations in Texas. Um, and in general, we do pretty well on those things, although surprisingly, um, the price of gas can be cheaper in other states that are further away from refineries, um, which takes a lot of backroom logistics to figure out why that might be so. Putting that to one side, um, I have heard industry sources say the price of um, a barrel of crude could go to $200. Um, I think we're at sitting at 110 or 120 right now. And uh, how long it go, could go there, how much of it could go there, not every barrel of crude is traded at the highest price. Um, a lot of contracts are locked in for long periods of time at much lower prices. What the overall average price is for a refined uh a gallon of gas um, depends on a whole lot of inputs, but it depends on how long the conflict is. It depends on how long the uncertainty is, and um, it depends on how scared people get. Well, I, you know, I like this. I like this is extremely important, and I hope that there's. I hope those people listening will go get other people to listen if they have the chance, because I think this is the kind of news that's going to get talked about around dinner tables and around the water coolers at work, and I think. People should be as informed as they can possibly be. And there's nobody better to inform you on this than, than Krista. And we're very really lucky to have her on, on the show at the moment. I'm going to change the topics just a bit because people are hearing this on the news. And so let's talk about what the facts of the matter are. I'll take them one at a time and perhaps Krista will help me one at a time. One of the things that's happening is a political attack on Biden and Democrats over the Keystone XL pipeline cancellation. It's gone so far that former Vice President Mike Pence has TV ads running in 10 congressional districts around his organization does around the country, four here in Texas. And if you watch and listen to this ad, the basic message is these Democrats killed the pipeline and by killing the pipeline, they are aiding and abetting Putin in his assault on Ukraine. It's a really outrageous, really bad, wrong, speaking of moral low ground, <laughs> moral low ground attack. But nonetheless, that said, there is the issue, and we can use some facts, that that pipeline, that is a pipeline, right? It's, it, it contains oil, and that oil is being produced, and it's getting to market in other ways. So it's kind of a false claim that the Keystone Pipeline could since somehow rather magically save us from these high oil prices. Right, Krista? Am I right about that? Yeah, and I think I would emphasize in, in that whole thing the idea that what the Keystone Pipeline was intended to do was take Canadian oil from oil shales 
um, which, by the way, were not very economic to produce at the time that the Keystone Pipeline was shut down. So the need for it had diminished as well. Your point about getting those oils extracted from oil sands out of Canada another way is also a good one. But there, there was no indication, at least for our domestic consumption, that much of that oil was going to be headed for our um, gas stations anyway. So it's, it's a bit, as we call in the law, a red herring. Um, and it's way too oversimplified to speak to the situation. But it does have the Republican hallmarks of um, a simple uh, bogeyman to point at and, and call it the, res- the, the cause of all that ails us. Okay, thank you. I think that's important to stress. I hope people can understand that, that that pipeline weren't functional and wouldn't have a big impact on where we are today. And it's not, and it couldn't be in any short-term way. A second thing the Biden administration is trying to make clear, because they're being accused of basically, of course, they always frame this, the Republicans frame it using pretty extreme terms. So if you listen to what they're saying, they're saying Biden shut down new oil production. And the Biden administration answer is that there are 9,000 currently unused drilling permit leases available for the oil companies to utilize. Krista, what's the full story there? Can you help us with that? Well, that I find that a very interesting statistic. So what happens when a, um exploration and production company uh, wants to drill a new well is they file in Texas with the Texas Railroad Commission for a drilling permit. And they get a permit, and when they actually begin drilling on that allowed permit is up to the oil company. I don't know where the 9,000 comes from. It could be simply on federal controlled lands that that statistic pulls from, which to me would suggest there's a whole bunch more other locations that um, are possible wells that exist in the state system, such as the state of Texas or the Oklahoma Commission, which is our their equivalent of the Railroad Commission. Uh, and by the way, for those who have never heard me say this, the Railroad Commission has not one thing to do with railroads. It monitors <laughs> and oversees oil and gas production in the state of Texas. So don't get confused by that. So yeah, there's always an ability to drill more wells. And I would also observe that in Texas, in particular, it's fairly simple to file for and get approved a, a drilling permit. So whether there's 9,000 or 90,000, um, that number can change and increase in pretty short order. You know, it's just that's exactly right. And it's it's so it's one, it's simply not the case that the Biden administration has shut down the production of new oil. Right. It has not happened. That's simply not true. I think it's in some fairness to oil producers. They're people, too, and they have bandwidth issues, too. And their decisions about whether to drill and when to drill, even after they get permits, have to do with their bandwidth and their capacity and their capital and what and their guess at the futures market. I mean, there's a lot of factors that happen. And so they're not just being lazy is the point I want to make. On the other hand, as Krista's made clear, they could begin ramping up production to a great degree, and the Biden administration and nothing else is in their way today. We don't know how much they could increase it a lot, but there's nothing in the way of them doing that, Uh, certainly not the Biden administration or any Democrat anywhere in the country that I'm aware of. Yeah, and, and to your point, Glenn, nothing in the federal system controls how many 
drilling permits are issued in the state of Texas system. Um, I mean, there are other uh, regulatory issues that can come into play about, you know, EPA-type violations. But by and large, this particular question is not something the federal government has oversight of. A really important point. Thank you for that. We're coming up on the on the end here. Uh, I wanted to ask. I actually want to ask both of you guys uh, this question. It, it does seem to me that it's a little curious, honestly, um, that uh, the Democrats almost seem to be saying drill, baby, drill at this point. We need more domestic production at this point because it's an emergency situation. It's a highly unusual situation. What does this say? And is is this kind of a hitting a wall uh, to a certain degree? Um, when it comes to, I mean, I, I guess our dependence on foreign oil is, is hitting us right square between the eyes at this point. Uh, what does this moment say about uh, the future of, of renewable energy and, and where we could, you know, what can we do, first of all, to wean ourselves off of foreign oil? And then second of all, finally get to that uh, goal of weaning ourselves off of oil, you know, at all. D- does this does this incident seem to be something that might spur that process along or? Is that, a, and I'm not saying that we would, that, you know, wind and solar is going to sweep in and save us today. I know that's not going to happen. But is this moment something that could perhaps spur that development on a little faster? So there's a lot of things I'd love to spend time addressing in that question. But let me say this I think your question points to the absolute need to set direction, but take a long view of the issue. We are are not capable of, and nor should we, immediately turn off all fossil fuel production. Um, There is a time to transition uh, that is absolutely baked into all of human existence, right? We've got all of this infrastructure that has been established over the last hundred years for a specific way of delivering energy for our human endeavors. And it takes time to transition away from that. And we have to be careful and thoughtful about our policies as to what's the next steps. Um, That being said, I think that the future does include increasingly more renewables. Um, You know, even as we've been looking at our grid failure problems here in Texas, you know, the the renewables have been stepping up, um, despite being blamed for the fact that uh, we we were, we were without power for a week, which is also a falsehood, because um, it was natural gas that failed to deliver the power we needed to the grid when we needed it in February of 2021. So I think we're on the right track towards a better future with a better mix of renewable and sustainable energy. And we just have to be careful that we are methodical and we plan well for how we're getting from point A to point B on this step. Oh, yes. Thank you very much. I hope people will take that to heart. I want to as add, I can only add one thing to that very thoughtful uh, analysis, and that is it's not helping on the thoughtful part that every time we get to one of a place like this, the conversation goes to extremes, right? For instance, at the start of the grid failure, uh, windmills were being blamed and that was a that was a intentional misleading uh, frame to take the heat off the natural gas producers who are in pipelines who are really to blame, but who give a lot more money to politicians than the windmill people do. The the problem with that is is it it 
it slows down that thoughtful transition that Chris and all of us know is necessary because it, it paints the picture in these extremes. And that, that itself frustrates the public's movement towards the transition because they, they throw their hands up and go, oh, hell, nothing will ever happen. I just don't want to think about this anymore. And then all of a sudden, we're losing steam in the movement to get done what is necessary to save humanity and the planet. So um, I, and I wish we could get a little bit more thoughtful framing of these issues as they arise singly uh, in our political sphere. Amen to that. Very good. Thank you guys so much. Krista Castaneda, uh, we appreciate you very, very much uh, for your time and uh, and amazing expertise. And we may, you know, depending on how all this goes over the next uh, coming weeks and months, may call on you again, if you don't mind. And thank you. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed this, Krista. Thank you so much for being with us. Happy to do it. Make sure and uh, check out our uh, other offerings and uh, Glenn Smith's great blog entry today on this very topic over at ProgressTexas.org. Uh, thank you for listening to the podcast. Uh, make sure and share and subscribe. Uh, hit ProgressTexas.org to find out about all the great things that uh, that we do and continue to do for the uh, cause of uh, progress here uh, in the great state of Texas. For Glenn Smith, for Krista Castaneda, Chris Mosier signing off. We'll catch you next time. The Progress Texas Happy Hour is a production of Progress Texas, a rapid response media organization promoting progressive messages and actions. Find us online at progresstexas.org and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. The podcast is produced by me, Chris Mosier, and our featured music is by Walker Lukens. Please be sure and subscribe to the Progress Texas Happy Hour on the podcast platform of your choice. Take a moment to leave us a review if you've enjoyed the show and be sure and tell your friends about us. Thanks for listening and for all you do to press progress forward here in the Lone Star State. We'll see you again next week.